Hello and welcome to the first episode of Season 10 of the CBO Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Donna Sheely. So glad to be back with you. We're talking with Lucian Costley today. He is the Vice President for Planning and Finance at Schreiner University in Texas. Hi, Lucian, and welcome. So glad to have you. Hi, how are you doing, Donna? I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we're we're excited to have you. So we know that school is starting back up for you all, but I want you to first give us a little synopsis about Shriner University. Sure. I'm very happy to do so. I can tell you, Shriner University, we're located out in the hill country of Texas, the beautiful hill country. I'd say, oh, it's the beautiful hot hill country right now. My goodness. Oh, these my goodness. What, it's what? unbelievable. It's just, what, what is going on? Anyhow, I, don't know. <laughs> I will say that we're about an hour outside of San Antonio, Texas, and we are always five to seven degrees cooler than San Antonio because we're in the hill country, which is wonderful. But the way things are now, it just seems like it's hot and hot and hot and hot. So I, I know I, it. I don't know. I know it. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But um, we are a primarily a residential campus. Uh, we've got about twelve to 1,400 students. It just kind of ranges from fall to fall. And uh, like I said, primarily undergraduate, residential, where the face-to-face experience is what, you know, how we find ourselves to provide that value-added proposition to say, we want you to come here and be a part of the Shriner experience out in the Hill Country. And, um, you know, the town here in Kerrville is about 25,000 people. And it's just this, I don't know, it's a, it's just this great place. Um, in many ways, providential for some because of how they found it. And for others, it's just home. So, uh, we recruit, you know, your typical, uh, enrollment where the primary, you know, or the average, uh, distance from home to your college is the 51 miles, 52 miles kind of radius. And because Texas is so large, uh, our primary, uh, campus really is the Texas residents. And so they'll come from different parts of the state. Now, don't get me wrong. We've got some folks from Hawaii that are part of the wrestling team. And we've got, you know, some individuals from different states that want to be on equestrian and do all of that. And so that's a good thing. But. One of the things I'll tell you is that this year we're celebrating 100 years of existence. It is our centennial. A lot of celebrations are have happened and will continue to happen. Our official celebration is on September 18th, and where we're going to have a big birthday cake and do the whole whole thing. Coincidentally, uh, we are restarting an aviation program, something that happened at the university decades ago. We're actually going to plan to have a flyover on the lawn and do this. I mean, it's just, we're so excited. I mean, it's just a lot of great energy on this campus because uh, we have, and as we should, celebrate our history and toast to the next 100 years. Oh, that's amazing. That's me. And you all have some military, you kind of talked about the aviation. You have a military connection. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, so we started at Schreiner Institute in 1923, and it was a school for, uh, for boys is really what it was, a military institute. And as time went on, it changed and females came on board and it was, you know, it just the mission of the education, it shifted, right? And so, uh, you know, a couple decades after that, uh, the, the military driver wasn't as dominant. And so the, the shift went into where we went from Schreiner Institute to Schreiner College and we became a, a baccalaureate degree in a granting institution in the early eighties. 
And then in 2001, we changed our name from Schreiner College to Schreiner University. And so when I talk about the aviation, well, back when it was a military institute, all those guys, they would go flying out at, you know, Kerrville Field. And I mean, that was just part of our history. So when we say, oh, we're restarting again, well, back then there wasn't a degree in aviation, but the activities on campus uh, were heavy handed and they were up in the up in the skies. So it's kind of crazy. Here we are again. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So talk to us about your journey that led you to uh, Shriner. How long have you been there? Uh, next month will be nine years here at Shriner. And I relocated here uh, from New York City. Um, and so, and I basically was working on my PhD up in the Northeast. And I'm originally from Texas. So coming back to Texas and uh, in San Antonio, you know, kind of the home, coming back home, basically. I'm originally from a, a small town south of here called Falfurious, where, can I just add, is the home of the watermelon queen and the birthplace of the Falfurious butter. I'm just okay. going to add there. So. <laughs> the watermelon queen and watermelon the queen. Uh-huh. and what was the butter a foul furious butter and it's actually still sold so okay. i mean those I, I clearly where you are donna there it, it doesn't go out to those parts but in texas and all throughout a lot of different places foul furious butter is the best one you can find oh. and um it's really, really great. Anyway, and so royalty still go back to the to, to the town, and my parents still live there, so I, that's a big thing for me. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Okay, so you were in New York, and you were were you working on your PhD in New York? Is that what you were doing there? Yeah, you know, my background uh, was in biology and chemistry, and then of course I got my MBA a couple of years later, um, and and I was in adult education, so basically more in the the K through twelve, you know, people. Trying trying to get their high school diploma. Um, and so I was working in San Antonio for for some time for what they call a, a, an education service center, basically for the state where we provided support for school districts. And, and as working as an administrator in education, it was great. Uh, it really, really was. But I knew that I needed to change. And I found a program, uh, of course, in in New York City well, while living there. I actually graduated from Seton Hall University, which is technically in South Orange, New Jersey. But uh, I took the train out to uh, Jersey every day. I love. I, I bet you saw my face. <laughs> I did. <But> I, <laughs> but I used to live in South Orange, New Jersey. I literally lived across the street from Seton Hall. I could see it from my bedroom window. So oh, yes, I'm oh very familiar. <laughs> That's oh, pretty go awesome. Pirates. Go Pirates! <laughs> yeah. So um, I was there for you know four years uh, working on that in uh, the early 2010s, and so. Um, it was a great time. Don't get me wrong. I went through Sandy and did all of I mean, the oh, whole yeah. thing or whatever. Yeah. It was just one of those things. But anyhow, when I relocated back to Texas, I moved back here because my parents are here in Texas. And I thought, oh, okay, it's time for me to come back for a little while. And um, I found this job here at Shriner. And I knew about Shriner while being here in Texas and living in San Antonio. So it wasn't unfamiliar. And I was very lucky to start as the director of institutional research here at the university. The university was at a time where it was ready for a pretty big pivot, where uh, they needed someone to bring in a statistical mind to research 
the university for the university. Let's go from a data-driven type of environment to a data-informed environment. And, and, and what I brought to the table, which I honestly say, and others, of course, have talked about it, I wasn't your typical IR person. I was very big on illustrations and graphs, really telling the story, really being able to, yes, on the back end code and get the, get the syntax and do all of that. Cause that was the work that I was doing with my PhD, but to really kind of take those data and illustrate it so that I can teach others and, 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 and in a way not make them feel as if, Oh, you have a PhD, but you don't know what uh, an ANOVA is, or you don't know what a linear regression is. And, because it's not about that, right? And so I, I, I built some pretty strong connections here on campus and, um, which was a, a great thing. And so what happened was when I got here, I worked under the division of administration and finance. So I reported directly to the vice president and CFO and he and I had a pretty good relationship. He understood data. He also had an IR mindset or th- that just, he, he understood IR. So when we would work together, it was just, you know, it was like a piston kind of going back and forth. I mean, we were really able to delve into data, really kind of infer on the statistics and to help the institution advance. You know, we worked on strategic planning. We did enrollment forecasting things that hadn't been done before in a way where it was done in-house versus outsourced. So so over time, I, I built a lot of credibility on campus. And then, of course, I was uh, one of the primary authors for our accreditation decennial report. And as you know, in that world, you are writing about the entire university enterprise. You've got to know everything. And you're in people's businesses about, well, I need documentation and this and that. And so I really, really understood the entire or was able to understand the entire university operations from a different lens. So I was very, very fortunate. And so what happened is that over time, I got promoted and became an AVP. And then uh, we all together went through this pandemic and uh, <laughs> kind of on the, the tail end of that pandemic, uh, the CFO decided to to retire. He felt like he and his wife, it was, was a, this was the time for him. All along, the reality was, is that I was the succession plan. And, and there were some conversations about that, but nothing, uh, nothing uh, uh, definitive, because frankly, you know, if you're a good, you're a good employee and you believe in what you're doing, you know that the best decision needs to be made for the university and not where you would expect for you to automatically take take the role, right? Uh, I would want the best thing for Shrine University. And if at that, that, that time when he departed, if a national search needed to happen and we needed to do something, well, then I would have absolutely applauded that. And, and I think that's important for anyone uh, in these types of positions expecting something is to always just remain open-minded and, and not have that expectation because anything can happen. So... But I was I was pretty uh, pretty lucky coming up to that. Not many CFOs come up through an institutional research. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, but yes, I, I I did. That's quite different. Okay, so what were your first impressions as you entered into this role? Anything that you you had your insights on it from what I'm what I'm hearing, but what kind of challenged you as you first got into that role? The change from the Northeast back to San, back to Kerrville and San Antonio, that was probably my biggest challenge where I was intentional 
about separating my personal and professional life. So, and, and, and I'll tell you this, Kerrville is a town of 25,000 people. And there are universities that are in towns of this size. There are universities in town and in, in, in metropolitan cities where when going to dinner or when going to the grocery store, you tend to not run into your fellow colleagues and uh, fellow employees, but in a small town, you absolutely do. And so that was one of, of you know, kind of that eye-opening thing. And, and that's, of course, on location, not on Shriner. The, the, the challenge here at Shriner was also, I guess, to the same kind of tone, a small uh, component. If something happened to me, people knew about it. I remember... I was living in on campus because when I moved here, my boss at the time, he's like, we, we got to get you here as soon as possible. And of course, I'm saying, I can't, I can't find a place right now. I need more time. And he says, how about you live in one of the apartments on campus, like in student housing, you'll have your own apartment for three months. That means it gets you here and then you can find a place. I'm like, okay, great. Right. Well, it's a moment for me to realize, oh, I'm on a college campus, but I'm also on the other side of that on the other side of that line. So the, that shift was probably my biggest challenge, even though I'll tell you, uh, when I was doing my undergrad, I uh, was fortunate enough to take on a role at the same time as a staff member at that university. And I remembered the culture and the experience and, and, and all of that. And I love the higher ed setting. And so it was a good moment, but I'll tell you one, one thing in particular was, um, I'm in a cabinet meeting. This was probably three weeks in. Okay. I was asked to, of course, be as a resource for the cabinet the moment that I got here. And the conversation came up about, oh, uh, what do you think the value-added proposition of Shriner is? You know, what, why Shriner kind of deal? And these are the kinds of things that we wanted to investigate. And of course, non-data, anecdotal, I said in front of everybody, said, well, you know, I, can I just say, I don't think you will promote this just yet. I was too new to know the difference. I said, I, I'm living in Pecan Grove in the apartments, and I see all of these students with their dogs, and they're taking them for walks and everything. I just got to say, I think that's amazing that you do that, that you're allowing students to bring their dogs and their animals with them. They're connected with them at home. You're letting them bring them here. That's a good way for them to build a connection. They feel that they're at home. They've got something. It's not just about the bedspread and the poster. It's more than that. They've got a family member there with them. I mean, kudos to you. If we're not promoting that, let's put that on the front page. And everybody looked at me with this look and they're like, we don't allow animals in the apartments. I'm like, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, goodness. You just told on everyone. <laughs> so, so part of that is like, oh, yeah, there are college students around here. And and there is a bit of that separation. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, you know what? Maybe I'll just stick to data. So. <laughs> That is a great story. I love, I love that. So um, when you made that transition after the uh, previous CBO retired, what year was that? That was in 2000, uh, 2021. Okay. So okay. I'm over two years officially in this. And I was an AVP for three years before that. Okay. 
So talk to us a little bit about the growth in these two years, something unique about your growth and something that's stretching you. I'll tell you, legal situations stretch me. Insurance, property and casualty coverage stretches me. There, there's one thing to be to to be said, and and I talk about legal situations, not just oh somebody suing us, but on the rever- on the other side, when do we take proper action and and not let someone take advantage of us at the university, right? Um, it was oh I'd say it's been you know I'm dealing with probably seven to ten legal firms at once, right, for different issues. Oh. Uh, we've got a, we're trying to monetize a, an asset and we want to sell it. So I'm dealing with land lawyers about how to do all of that and looking at those contracts and, and really making sure that, 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 that that's right. And, and here's a world that I'm not used to. And so I'm, I'm relying on others and with their expertise and I'm having to trust people because I don't have the bandwidth nor the wherewithal to go take a course on on legal contracts. I mean, you know, what am I supposed to look out for? You know, we were with the aviation, like I was talking about uh, before, you know, what's the right contract for the company that we're outsourcing the, the the service to and making sure, and here I am talking with legal, are we covered? I want to do the right thing. Is a, a five-year contract appropriate? Is it three? Is it 10? I mean, you know, what are, what are these things that, that I should know that I don't know? Or even trying to, to get a, a band to come for us, for a concert and talking with legal counsel. Now, now don't get me wrong, but talk to legal counsel about Title IX issue or a, an employee issue just for guidance, right? You know, how we handle this or what's the best position move for the university. That's always going to be there. Um, but I say even just from the legal side, it's more about the 20 page contracts that just seem very intimidating. And, uh, I find them to be something where my name's on it. I, I really want to know more about that. So that, that's something that is making me stretch. And then, of course, insurance, you know, I know insurance from my house and my car and those types of things, but buildings and infrastructure, it's a different kind of animal. And what the umbrella policy is and what your limits are and how many providers do we have and who's the broker and how does that work? And, and are we are spending too much money on these fees and what's appropriate and what's not? And, and, and I think that's another element where it wasn't in my wheelhouse coming in, but now I've got to be as much of an expert as I can so that I can demonstrate competency to the board and to my colleagues and to the president. And how are you doing that? Like, do you have um, peers, mentors that are kind of helping you through? Talk to us a little bit about that. Initially, my predecessor, right, when, when I was the AVP, would kind of do that together and I learned from him. But, but then once he, once he left, I, you know, am I on my own? So I'll tell you, I've spoken a lot with our legal count, our general counsel, who we, we have on retainer. But quite honestly, I, I know this was not the reason for me being selected here. And I know that this is also not a promo, but I, I established some pretty good relationships with uh, my colleagues from the Nakubo Fellows Program. And when I went through that as an AVP and connected here as the, as the CFO or CBO, 
those relationships that I have, I can pick up the phone and call a handful of them. Frankly, I can call all of them and they would all respond because they know that I would respond to them. Uh, at the last Nakubo f- uh, forum in Orlando, I actually had two conversations uh, with three uh, of the fellows who were there and we talked shop and we talked about these things about, and, and that alone just helps me think through uh, the situation. And um, you know, have you experienced this clause in a contract or, you know, anything like that? The, the fellows in this job in particular, they have been the ones that, that have uh, helped me. Uh, about a year ago, um, yes, yeah, so it was about a year ago, I reached out to some CFOs in San Antonio because, frankly, they know what I'm going through and I know what they're going through. And uh, I set up a, a morning breakfast and two others ended up showing up and we just had a moment to kind of talk things out. Um, and I know, you know, they're just as busy as I am. And if they initiated one, then I would do it. And of course I did. I haven't circled back with that, but I find that to be just uh probably the best professional development just because it's a roundtable discussion that's quite valuable and that's helped me grow in what way very good yeah oh that's awesome what a great commercial for the fellow <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing yeah but also the importance of reaching out I like what you said about that because some people may be a little you know hesitant to do that so I, I like how you touched on that and and just listening to you now I hope that encourages others to do what you've done in reaching out the reality is is that if another CFO called you wouldn't you take their call yeah. you absolutely would yeah. so if you initiated it and you needed some help I mean we're not alone. You know, we sometimes it feels like we're on an island and we're all by ourselves and we're the only ones that are trying to balance a variety of things. But you know what? It's good to have somebody else that you know, we're not on the same bus, but we're on the same seat and each individual bus and, and we're, we're, we're dealing with our own. So, but yeah, that, that's an important thing. Well, can you briefly tell us what is all under your umbrella there? Now here at the university, I oversee all of budgeting and uh, accounting office, business office, financial aid. I oversee all of IR and institutional effectiveness. Um, I oversee the uh, auxiliary services. So that's bookstore, events, camps, uh, the mail center. Um, I oversee the campus clinic, uh, the food service uh, provider, the um, um, brace yourself, the beer garden on campus. Okay. Uh huh. And the new winery that we are, uh, installed. <laughs> I just saw your face. You uh, think? the new winery that has been installed. And, uh, in the next few months, the wine tasting room that will connect to that winery on our campus. Oh, goodness. Uh, so is this something the students? are part of do they um, yes okay. well it, we're we're getting it set up so that there is a quite quite honestly a workforce uh, opportunity and uh, for them and and where they could have a, an additional credential as they graduate with their degree and you know we here in the hill country it is uh, just uh, saturated with uh, vineyards okay. and and so you know some would arguably say why would you go put a vineyard on your campus when there are so many? Well, 
the, the reality is, is that this is a teaching vineyard. This is not a vineyard for, cause we're going into business and we're going to go. That's not what we're doing. We're partnering with a winery and they want to do the teaching component because for those individuals who want to just experience different kinds of wines, there's a revenue generating component for that. Uh, there's a teaching element. And when someone's interested in that, they want to go learn at a university. And there's some, there's some validation. Just the fact that you're going to go do that at a university, um, automatically. Yeah. But there are also providers in the viticultural world that need their own professional development. And we want to do that for them as well. So our intention is that we can go from grape to glass. And a student who is a marketing major or a history major who may want this credential, uh, they can go and pick it up. And then also, um, when the incoming freshman cohort comes in, they'll do some bottling. And then when they graduate in four years, they can uh, take that bottle when they cross the stage. Very good. That's that's excellent. I love that. I love all of it. <laughs> it makes me want to take a visit. No, I think that's great. So, and then I guess the other thing is, like, you know, legal, like I was just talking to you about, and human resources. I did. Oh gosh, I didn't mention that all the human resources, but um, I th- think I included all of all of that. Yeah. So during the course of your day, where do you find you spend more of your time? Obviously, you're covering everything, but where do you spend, you find you spend a little bit more time? And that may change throughout the year, I'm sure. But at this point in the year, where do you find yourself spending more time? At the beginning of the school year, it's primarily in in budgeting. Okay. And and it really is about the enrollment numbers and where are we and what's that budget of how far off were we on our initial predictions when we asked the board to approve our operating budget. So a good portion of my time is is really on there. Are people set up for success? Do they have what they need? And, and we're good to go. Uh, I, I say, you know, that's a good chunk. Uh, the other chunk um, has really been providing support uh, for my fellow colleagues. What what issues do we need to go fix in the residence halls? What has broken? What ha- you know? What what repairs do we need to go do? So there's a capital planning type of uh, function where we're really addressing um, uh, addressing that. Um, and so that's that's really kind of have my hands or they're pretty heavy handed there. Coincidentally, at this time, you know, we've just hired a new director of human resources and we've just transitioned where our payroll is being outsourced uh, for to a third party provider. So, you know, it's like those things. I'm not going to have this issue in two months, right? It's gone. The project will be done and we'll be moving on to, to other things. Um, I'll say to any given day and or week, I'd say the finances, whether it's uh, budget or we're forecasting or anything. It's probably about 40% of my time, 50% of my time. And then the rest is, you know, peaks and troughs of multiple areas dealing with um, those kinds of situations. We've got an issue at the beer garden or we've got a problem with the boiler or we've got, you know, it just kind of an AC or HVAC situation just kind of ranges. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Higher education, the lands, the current landscape of higher ed right now. Give us your kind of broad take on where you see things going and how they are right now. I can tell you, uh, or at least I feel, uh, if you're not paying attention to that enrollment cliff 
and what uh, statisticians are saying and from birth rates and of where we were 18 years ago to the demands in higher education and the supply throughout the country and how different parts of the country are tapping into areas and markets that 10, 15 years ago, they weren't present. That should be on your immediate radar. Doing the same thing over and over is not going to make a difference. You know, there are institutions in higher education where their name is enough. They don't need to to do much. You have an Ivy League school. You uh, may even have a, a very large public institution uh, where they have additional support from the state. I'm talking primarily a private institution that is not large, a smaller one. So this is my lens kind of evaluating the higher education landscape. We're seeing more and more either for-profit or non-profit online institutions be a competitor in the marketplace. And so because you know, there is this narrative at the national level about the return on investment for a college education. Now, I will be the first one to tell you that narrative is wrong, that there is value in a college education. You will get your return on investment. Your social mobility will improve. And, and the narrative that has, that has happened in this country in the past 20 and 30 years is wrong. I can recognize that uh, there are students with high amounts of debt. I, I can firmly tell you that has everything to do with a financial aid office not providing the best financial literacy to those students and or certain institutions in the higher education sector that are out to make a very big profit and not there for a mission-driven purpose. And so... Our work tends to get masked by, quite honestly, the greed from other sectors within the higher education landscape. So if you're listening to this, and I'll speak this again, that narrative at the national, uh, at the national level about the return on an investment for a college degree, it is worth it. People need this. Uh, it will help you in the long run. It will elevate your your career and um this is something that i recognize that maybe a four year degree may not be something that every individual can find themselves in but a, a credential a post secondary credential of some sort there's a full variety of it and by all means it should be here and it should be here to stay now you know as we evaluate that enrollment cliff and where we have fewer people that were born, we're also seeing an influx of individuals coming from uh, other countries. And, you know, what is their path? And how do we as an institution help them with that path, right? Uh, first generation of group of students. Um, how do we help them navigate the very difficult path because it's complicated? Um, and so these are some of those challenges. Um, I will say that an institution like us, if we are not continuing to look for that value-added proposition, what sets us apart from another institution like the Schreiner experience that I'm talking to you about, or even a, a degree program that is specific to our area where others don't have it, like aviation, and where we know that there's a demand in the country, 
um, we have to continue to find those niche and or value added proposition uh, academic programs or opportunities. You know, on top of equestrian, we have a, a clay shooting team. We have a riflery team on this campus. Um, we understand we are in Texas. This is what the world is in this part of the country. And so that's where we are. We had football, oh, decades ago. And uh, we're in the process of restarting football on this campus because football is life and in Texas and it's Friday night lights and that kind of thing. So we have a strategic plan in place so that we can um, move towards move towards that. But, you know, we're pulling multiple levers because that higher education landscape continues to change. And there are many narratives out there that we're trying to uh, say, yes, this is good. And no, this is wrong. Yeah. No. Well, you made some very good points. And this, this podcast is part of that, you know, getting those ideas out that you just shared for other people to hear so that we can change that narrative Absolutely. from what they have on the national level. So that was very good. So finally, I just want to talk about your future. Um, what does that look like in higher ed and what do you foresee on the horizon? I find myself at a, at a great place here at, at Schreiner. I know and I've talked to the president about my my career path and and how I if in order for me to make a difference at an institution specifically at this level, I've got to be here for a couple of years. You, you can't jump. Um, and, and for anybody, any CBO thinking about this role, or if you just landed somewhere, if you are going to make a difference, uh, and for whatever, uh, uh, goals that you may set forth for you at that, at that job, whether it's increasing, uh, net assets, whether it's, you know, reducing the, the tuition discount rate, whatever goal it may be as the CBO, I'm going to finish this construction project, whatever it is. You can't do that in a year or two. You you need a little bit more time to establish your presence and to make an impact. And so I've been doing this for two years now. It's still too early for me. I know that I'm going to continue here at Shriner uh, for a little bit longer. And I've talked to the president about, you know, what is that next move? It is, a, is it a next move as a CBO at a larger private institution? Cause I can tell you, while I think public institutions are great and they serve a specific need, I will not find myself at an institution of 50,000 people. That's not my, I just know that I won't do a, a justice there. I need the uh, the smaller environment. But but if it's an institution of three thousand students, then you still have that small feeling, even though you have you would hope to have the financial resources and bandwidth to do some wonderful things. So is it that approach where it's a larger one in the next step kind of thing? At the same time, you know, when I received my PhD, it was in higher education, leadership, management, and policy. And the intention was to lead an institution and to, to serve as its president. When that time is right, I hope to also take that seat. So, you know, which path will it be? I, I don't know, but I can tell you no matter which direction I go uh, or what, you know, on that fork of the road, I know that the experience that I've had thus far here at the university with a variety of things that we've dealt with, like the same things that other institutions are dealing with, I'll be prepared and and ready to take that on. Awesome. 
That is awesome. Yes, you will. You will. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Very informational. I really, really appreciate you, Lucian, for being a part of this podcast. And we want to thank everyone for joining us today for this episode of CBL Speaks. It's brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Make sure you subscribe to CBL Speaks on Apple Podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Lucian Costley of Schreiner University, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. CBO Speaks is a production of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Audio engineered by Andy Nelson and True Story FM. Music by Michael Bean. Post-production support by Janelle Dempsey. And I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Thank you for listening.